Good morning. Today marks uh, what is sometimes called the end of the end of what's sometimes called our summer recess. That's a few weeks when we allow our service teams a bit of a break by stopping our usual Sunday services. That is, everyone except maybe Jesse and Joel, who just keep ploughing on, serving, and the likes of Ian and Joyce who give us the coffee and everything. Um, but anyway, give, give our teams a little bit of a break. And in that sense, it really is a recess. But in other ways, it's actually much more of an advance. The past several Sundays have offered many opportunities to advance in relationship with others through Cafe Church and the picnic, in adults and kids mixing it up, uh, in the family services, and in the wider communities as well of Cooper and St Andrews in the prayer walks and giveaway Sundays. In each one of these, there's, of course, also an opportunity for personal growth, stretching ourselves beyond the comfort zone of what we find normal. Now, these advantages of the summer program echo the reasons why we always insist on social evenings as a regular part of home group schedules. In a purely social setting, we get closer to meeting each other as we really are the person that we are at work and at home, as, like, as well as the person that we are at church. In that way, we're sort of challenging and gradually breaking down the artificial divide that we all tend to make between the sacred and the secular. As we read in 2 Corinthians, if we are in Christ, we are now a new creation, and the old has passed away. And if that's true, then there ought to be no separation between the secular and the sacred. If the old has passed away and the new has come, then the natural and the spiritual, the earthly and the divine, are all one. John Wimber, who gave to us so much of what we, uh, what we value and practice in the vineyard, frequently preached to large congregations, conferences of thousands. And like many preachers, he was sometimes asked, how do you prepare yourself to walk out on those big stages? And he used to reply, well, I finished my potato chips and turn off the TV and walk out on the stage. He shared this attitude with many of the historic heroes of the faith, people like Brother Lawrence. For people like that, there really is no divide between the sacred and the secular. The type of lives that they lived were naturally supernatural. We might simply call this authentic Christianity, which is probably the subject and is certainly the title of this talk. The man John Wimber was backstage watching his TV and eating his crisps was identical to the man who was just about to walk out on the stage and heal the sick and deliver the demonized just a minute later. He was the same guy, just doing a different thing. And he always utterly rejected any kind of emotional hype. Even when the most extraordinary things were happening, he'd often say, right, let's take a break, go and get a coffee. And, in fact, sometimes he'd simply leave the stage altogether and go home, just leave us to it. And the other side of this coin was that the same power which he experienced uh, on the stage, healing the sick and uh, delivering the demonized, was also present when he went about his ordinary business. There's one story he tells of a time in an airport lounge when he was waiting for a late flight which was delayed, and there was only one other passenger in the gate. As he sat reading, the one other traveller kept edging closer and closer to him. In the end, she was sitting so close that she was actually touching him. He just turned to her and said, feels good, doesn't it? And she said, yes, what is that? <laughs> Presence of God. 
Brother Lawrence, who worked in the kitchens of a monastery, used to end each formal time of worship and prayer with the following personal prayer. O oh my God, since you are with me, and I must now, in obedience to your commands, apply my mind to these outward things, I beseech you to grant me the grace to continue in your presence. And to this end, please prosper me with your assistance. Receive all my works and possess all my affections. I think when I grow up, I want to be like that. I want to be an authentic Christian. As we return this morning to our studies in Acts chapter 11, we'll revisit the story we ended with eight weeks ago. You might want to turn there in your Bibles right away. Acts chapter 11. And as I read in a moment, the words will come up on the screen, but if you've got your separate device, it might help you. Um, as, I, as I read in a moment, you may well think, as I do, that this is an excellent way to top and tail a period of advance in authentic Christianity. Are we ready? We're nearly ready. I'll begin. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered me a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and everything was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household." And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I don't want to spend too long this morning uh, revisiting this story, which is the second time, because we dealt with it all when we read chapter 10 together. Instead, I want to begin by pointing out something about Peter's change management skills. Then we'll examine the kind of evidence that he brings to bear in arguing his case. And I'll conclude by trying to capture what this passage might have to say to us about our own lives. So, part one, how does change work? Can we have the diagram up, please? For those listening on the podcast, the diagram we can all see depicts four, box, four text boxes arranged like the four on a set of dice. 
Box one above box two, three to the right of that, and four above it next to the one. Box one, if you're having difficulty reading it, represents denial. That's the phase where we simply don't see the need to change our ideas at all. And box four, which sits right alongside it, is acceptance, where we take a new idea fully on board in all its glory. Now, if you're anything like me, it can be tempting to think that with the sheer brute force of our logic alone, we should be able to batter people directly from the first date into the last. Well, every expert in the field of change management would say otherwise. In fact, they say no one who really changes his mind goes straight from one to four. Unless we allow people to go through stages two and three as well, all we are achieving, all we achieve is a grudging theoretical acceptance that is always prone to drifting back into stage two, which is the ugliest of them all and is called resistance. Now, resistance is the ugliest because it's also the most uncomfortable phase of the four. So that's where people will tend to lash out in defense of the status quo. That's just a natural but futile attempt to return to the blissful ignorance of denial. Leave me alone. I don't want to think about it. And when they do fly off the handle at us, as we all can do when our blind spots are challenged, it's always tempted to take up an oppositional position. You're wrong because... But if we do that, it instantly puts them on the defensive, and that can set the whole process back, sometimes permanently. It's much better, and here I really am speaking to myself as much as to you, gently to question them about their views, and specifically about any strong reaction they may have had. As Proverbs 15 verse 1 puts it, a gentle answer turns away anger. It's not always comfortable taking this humble approach, but it is the surest way to move someone from the angry, angry resistance of phase two into the next, which is called exploration. If our questions are sincere and spirit-led, they will encourage the person to question their own standpoint. Yeah, why did I react that way? Honestly speaking, how do I answer that question? Then continuing the discussion. Avoiding confrontation provides opportunity for our friend to think the matter through properly. And before he knows it, he'll begin seeking further information. Without realizing it, he's moved from outright opposition to thinking seriously about something that's really quite new to him. It's only from this position of exploration that a person can move into true acceptance. They've not been battered and bludgeoned unwillingly into a defeat. They've come to a genuine agreement by a thorough consideration of the issues. And this process, which was taught to me many years ago by a very highly paid change management consultant, is one that I've observed time and time again in my own life, my own heart, as I've changed my own ideas and developed them. And most particularly, it's, it's what I've seen as well in the way that people come to Christ. It seems to me to account entirely for the extraordinary success of the Alpha course. On that course, the deliberately non-confrontational discussions are always based on two questions. What do you think? What do you feel? And as the sessions go on, the guests begin to ask the team, team members, no, 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 well, what do you think? What do you feel about this? Then, of course, they've become as open as they'll ever be to hearing the gospel. That might sound like manipulation, but it's not. It's actually just good manners and kindness. Encouraging people to think thoughts 
about the gospel, to feel our own feelings about it, takes them step by step through to what we call repentance or metanoia, the change of mind and heart. Now, here in the Kingdom Vineyard, you may have noticed we rather like a good argument. Jeremy and I had an absolutely stunning one on Friday at Pub Church. And if you like a good argument, that's the place for it. Lunchtime on a Friday. Oh, yes, it is. That's not argument, that's just contradiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I understand it, the, uh, the ancient Greek idea of argument literally meant polishing the silver, i.e. refining and clarifying ideas. And I, I certainly found that fri uh, Friday lunchtime discussion helpful, but I don't think either of us actually changed our minds. And the fact is only a very few people will ever be argued into the kingdom of God. Argument can be fun, can even be helpful, but we'd always rather win a friend than an argument. And who knows, looking back at the last eight weeks, maybe simply by the act of giving out chocolate on the street, we challenged somebody's prejudices against the church. Perhaps we moved a couple of people just one step along their route towards Jesus. Part two, how did change management work for Peter in this passage? <clears throat> You've heard the theory. Now let's look at how it worked out in Acts 11. Before verse one, I think we can take it that the Judean Christians were in blissful ignorance that anyone from outside their culture, their race, their religion would ever be accepted into the kingdom of God. This prejudice was historically well-founded and it ran extremely deep. All their lives, they'd been told that they were the proper Jews, undeniably God's people. The people of Judea had even been pretty hostile, if we remember initially, to an upstart rabbi called Jesus. He wasn't one of them. He came from up north. So when in verse 1 they heard that the Gentiles had also received the Gospels, they were more than simply suspicious. They were shocked. The news had thrust them abruptly from denial into resistance. And it's no surprise then that their, uh, their response in verse 2 is highly critical. But let's just remind ourselves who's who here. Peter is one of the 12, uniquely placed as a witness to the life and teaching and resurrection of Jesus. He was also recognized by all and sundry as the person Jesus himself had called the rock on which I will build my church. So these guys have got a nerve, haven't they? Questioning him in this way. But Luke identifies the critics as what he calls the circumcision party. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a party I want to go to. An issue has already at this early stage arisen in the church which was going to trouble them for decades to follow. To some of them, it seemed self-evident that you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. Much of St. Paul's letters, written around this time, are spent refuting this very argument, sometimes in strong and amusingly mocking terms. But here, Peter doesn't get defensive at all. He understands exactly where these people are coming from. After all, when he had the vision himself, in verse 10, he had to be told three times not to refuse as ritually unclean what God had made clean. Three times he refused to eat the animals in the big sheep that had been shown. And in so doing, verse 8, he found himself in that impossible position where we say, no Lord. 
It's been well said that you can, you can, when God tells you to do something, you can say, yes, Lord, or you can say, no. But it doesn't make any sense to say, no, Lord. Now, it's really the mark of how deep Peter's Jewishness runs that he can find himself saying anything so foolish. In fact, I think the, the critical stance towards Peter is simply breathtaking in this passage. But as his response shows, he would rather win a friend than an argument. So rather than putting them in their place, he takes them step by step through the experience by which God had opened his own eyes to this new development in their understanding. He starts by pointing out, verse 4, that when he saw the vision, he was praying. That means that if they're going to disparage the vision, they've got to disparage his prayer life too, which is hard to do. Then in verse 8, he basically says that he responded to the vision exactly as any one of them would have done. Well, okay, I can follow that so far. But then comes the real question. His sound Jewish response must have been wrong. Because verse 11, at the very moment that the sheep was drawn back up into heaven after the third conversation, three unclean men, three non-Jews arrived at the house. Coincidence? I think not. And the Holy Spirit told Peter to go with them. He couldn't very well refuse to go after what he just experienced. This must have shaken his hearers to a, into the state of exploration. What can this mean? It certainly seems to be God, but it also seems to go against everything we've ever been taught. And Peter simply leaves them to explore the question. He leaves it hanging and goes on with the story. Then the next thing he does, if you notice in verse 12, is to drop six other guys right in it, along with himself. It's probably just as well to leave that until after the audience has become a little bit open to hearing what he has to say. Now, evidently, those six guys as well thought that the Holy Spirit was leading them to go with these Gentiles, or they would never have gone. Surprising as it was, it was a case of it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. And verse 13, when they got there and against every Jewish instinct entered the Gentiles' house, they found that Cornelius also had seen an angel. That's why he'd sent for Peter. The angel even gave directions to the very house Peter happened to be in in a different town. Now all this asks the question, is this coincidence? Perhaps not. What do I think about this? What do I feel about it? Then in verse 15 he tells how the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and the whole company, exactly like Acts 2. And it happened spontaneously, just as he was getting into his stride preaching them the gospel. Could that also be a coincidence? Or was it, verse 16, the very thing that Jesus was referring to when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As Peter paraphrases the issue in verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? The critics have by now had an ample time to ask themselves some questions. What would they have done if they'd been in Peter's shoes? Sandals, probably. How could they possibly argue with the result of what had happened? And what did this mean, in effect, in terms of their whole soteriology, their, their, their theology of salvation? In verse 18, we see how swiftly they move from exploration to acceptance. Then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
Part three, what sort of arguments did Peter deploy in this example of change management? And what did he avoid doing? A, for me it seems there is a massive clue right at the beginning of verse four. He didn't argue intellectual principles with them. He merely told the story as it had happened to him. The gospel is normally best served, not by excellent apologetics. Arguing the case for Jesus, by, but by clear witness instead, telling others what we've experienced. And Peter is here using the same device, if you notice, as Luke does in writing about it. Throughout the Acts of the Apostles, Luke never teaches theology or ecclesiology or any other ology. He merely tells the story as it happened and leaves us to draw our own conclusions. That's his method. And Peter's doing the same thing. For us, as for the critics in this passage, the conclusion we have to draw from it is unavoidable. The gospel has gone out to Jew and Gentile alike, and you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. At the time Acts was written, this question was the most divisive question the church faced. But still, Luke allows Peter's story to do all the talking for him. As, however, as we have noticed, he does underline the point by kind of telling it twice. B, so Peter principally uses witness, not argument, but in so doing, he's not afraid to include his experience of the supernatural. I was praying and I saw a vision. At that very moment, some men came to the house. The spirit told me to go with them. Cornelius had seen an angel who gave him instructions. And finally, the Holy Spirit came. See, he then uses a practical question, not a theological argument. As he brings to a close his account of what happened, he doesn't press his advantage with a crushing statement. Instead, verse 17, he simply asks, God did this, as these six witnesses will testify. What else could I do? D, throughout he speaks humbly as an equal, an ordinary person to whom something extraordinary has happened. This immediately makes it a question not of whether a once great leader has suddenly gone off his rocker, but of what any sensible person would have done in the circumstances. And E, this simple practical approach makes the whole thing an issue not of theory, but one of fact. We can do the same when we're witnessing to those who don't yet accept Christ. As we tell our own story, they can either believe us or not. But however intelligent they are, and however opposed to the gospel, they can't argue, because argument has no place or power in that context. Fourth and last, what can we learn from all this? First and most obviously, I suggest we can learn to wind our necks in a little bit when people are antagonistic towards us, whether that's about the gospel or about anything else. As James 1.20 puts it in the King James Version, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In other words, you don't bring about God's righteousness by getting cross about stuff. When people take you on, be encouraged. They've already taken one step along the way because they've obviously moved from denial into resistance. And as we quietly question why they feel that way, they will either uh, shut down the discussion and walk off in a huff in which case at least we got them out of denial. Or two good things will happen. We can come to understand them better, and they can come to understand their own viewpoint better, questioning their prejudices. The second thing I want to point up is, 
Many of us avoid mentioning the supernatural when we're speaking to non-Christians or pre-Christians. And indeed, there is such a thing as pearls before swine. But personally, I found that on the rare occasions when I did risk it, either in telling my own story and the supernatural things that have happened to me, or in speaking out a word of knowledge or, or, or he, praying for healing or whatever, that there's been very little antagonism to what I have to say. Third, like the critics, we should learn to question ourselves when something happens that simply doesn't fit with what we've learned so far. Is it the new thing that's wrong, or might my understanding have to expand a little? By definition, everything we've learned up to this point is not the whole picture. As Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything. Hold on to what's good. Some Christians are afraid to examine their beliefs, as if an honest questioning were a dangerous lack of faith, without which it is impossible to please God, etc., etc. Well, I don't think we need to worry about that. I think we should have enough faith to question our beliefs honestly. These great truths will easily survive the most intense scrutiny. If your house were in danger of subsiding, you dig down to the foundations and find out what's wrong and put it right. When faced with a new challenge or doctrine, there's a lot to be said for the Gamaliel principle, which we read in Acts 5. If this thing comes from man, it's going to fall apart of its own accord. But if it's from God, we better let it alone. Fourth and last, and I think most importantly, like Peter, we should learn not to call unclean what God has called clean. If we are a new creation in Christ, and that's 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if indeed, as that verse says, the old has passed away and all things have become new, then there is no part of my life that doesn't belong to Jesus. The lawyer, the butcher, and the teacher are every bit as holy as the preacher. Cooking and exercise and watching TV belong to God every bit as much as my prayer times. And I better learn to live like that. Authentic Christianity doesn't react badly when it's challenged. It responds with due humility. Authentic Christianity speaks openly about the supernatural as a matter of fact. Authentic Christianity isn't afraid to be questioned, or indeed to question itself. And authentic Christianity is the same in the bedroom, the kitchen, or the rugby field as it is in the pulpit or the prayer meeting. Most of us, I suggest, have a way to go before we become fully authentic little Christs. Few of us bear the stamp of Christ, the imago dei, as an unflickering light through all of life's ins and outs. But as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and submit to his discipline, the fruit of the Spirit is unfailingly formed in us. The love of Jesus, his joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control, all come gradually to fruition in our lives. Am I there yet? Heavens no. Am I willing to try? I'm going to give it a shot. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Holy Spirit, come.
Lord, we want to submit ourselves to your change management. And we recognize that you find us in, in different places uh, in regard to different parts of our life that you're addressing. And some we're in complete denial and you know that we need to change and we don't know ourselves yet. And others we're in resistance, we're kicking out against you and saying, no, leave me alone, I don't want to know. And others we're thinking about it and not doing anything about it. And need to come to accept what you have for us. So we thank you for your patience with us. And we ask that by your spirit you'll continue uh, talking to us, leading us through the changes that we need to come to through a life of repentance. A life of turning away from the old and into the new that you have for us. So come Holy Spirit and speak to our hearts now we pray. And I want to invite you in Jesus' name if you want a touch of the Holy Spirit on your mortal body if you're sick in some way or injured. If you want a touch of the Holy Spirit on your mind or your heart on your will or on your way of thinking. If you want to be empowered for a work that God has set before you, or if you just want direction, why don't you come and we'll ask some people who are in home groups in the church and under the discipline of the church to pray for you. So just come as soon as we start to sing. Mm -hmm.